Take your Bibles and turn to Hebrews tonight. Look, two passages there, and then one in the Gospels. When I was a kid, about probably 10, I collected, I don't know if anybody's matchbox cars. You remember those? I had the little matchbox suitcase where you opened it up and all those slots in there. Well, there's a few of them that I was missing, the ones that were kind of hard to get. And, you know, as a 10-year-old, I wasn't exactly having a job and making money. Um, so, but I really wanted these last three or four cars. So those are back in the days when you could let your kids take their bicycles and drive around, you know, the neighborhood and you wouldn't feel unsafe or anything. My friend and I crossed the street, Monty, Monty Schaefer, I remember him. We took our bikes and we rode over to Bargain City. Bargain City was kind of like the Walmart of its day. And I went in there and I just was going to look at and see if they had those matchbox cars. And lo and behold, they had all the ones I wanted, all four of them. So I couldn't believe it. I go, Monty, look at that. They're sitting right there in front of me. And so Monty looks at me and says, well, why don't you just take them? I can't take them. Why not? Because they don't even cost that much money. They won't care. I go, I think they're going to care, right? So I I decided to go, and he goes, all right, I'll take it for you. I go, okay, you take one, I'll take one. So we did. I took it, and he took it, and I put it in my pocket, and we looked around, and we walked out, and they didn't say anything. He was right. They didn't say anything. So I figured, hey, they must not care that I took that. So we rode our bikes and rode over to this little secret place we had uh, a little few blocks away, and we opened up our mat. He goes, here you go. I had two of them. It was so awesome. I only had two slots to fill. And I go, do you think we should go back for the other two? (laughs) Remember, I'm 10. Not a criminal mastermind by any stretch, right? He goes, yeah, why not? That was so easy. So, you know, as kids do, I walked into the store, you know, acting nonchalant and and all that stuff. So we go there, we're looking at him again. We look down this aisle, this aisle. So we each took one, put it in our pockets, turned around to walk out, and the big hand on my shoulder, young man, what do you think you're doing? I don't know, (laughs) you know. And so I, I had to go up, and I didn't even know this existed until I got in trouble. I had to go up the stairs into the office that was above all the rest of the store, and, and the guy manager looking down, and he, sit, he set me down and Monty and said, what is your dad's name and what is his number? Well, I, I knew my home number, but I didn't know my dad's number. So I called my mom, and I called, and she goes, what are you doing? I said, well, you better come down to Bargain City because I'm in trouble. She goes, nope, I'm not coming. I go, why? She goes, your dad is. We still believed in spanking back then. And so I was very much more afraid of my dad coming than anything the guy from Bargain City was going to do. So my dad came in. He was very stern, very strict disciplinarian. And so he came from work in the middle of the day. And he walked up there. And I, would, I didn't even want to sit, look at his face. And he looked at me, you know, but he surprised me. I thought he was going to be angry and say something like, you know, this, don't worry, this will never happen again. 
because my boy is in serious trouble. You know, no, no, don't worry. I did get in serious trouble later. But you know what he said to me? He goes, you know what, Lance? I'm really disappointed. I'm really disappointed because you know if you wanted those matchbox cards, who bought you all the other ones? I go, you did. And he goes, wouldn't I have bought you th- these two if you would have asked? I said, yeah. He goes, you know what? That's shameful what you did. I, I never forgot that. Now, on my way home, I started crying because as much as my dad was strong, you know, disciplinarian, I really wanted to make him happy and live my life to you know, please him other than keeping out of trouble. But you know, I got a spanking later, but I can tell you, that didn't bother me near as much as when my dad said, you know what, I'm very disappointed. That, I, that is shameful that you would steal. And I have never forgot that. And you know what, I was reading the scriptures this week, and I thought of the passages that Jesus says and talks about him being ashamed. And I asked myself the question, it's the same question I want to ask you tonight. Is Jesus ashamed of you? Because my dad on that night, that day, he was. I, I think he was. He didn't say it that way. I think he was ashamed because he taught me better. And my dad had bought all those things for me. And, and I never had anything. I never lacked anything. But yet I thought it, you know what, I didn't think about how that affected my dad and his job. I didn't think about what that meant for our family and the name of our family, what we were all about. I didn't think about it. All I thought about was me. You know what? And that day, my dad was ashamed of me. You know, in the scripture, it talks about Jesus being ashamed of some people and not ashamed of others. And I, I want to take a look at that because if you look at Hebrews, the passage I had you turn to, in chapter 2 and verse 11, it kind of is like a bracket in this book. In chapter 2, verse 11, and then we're going to look at chapter 11 and verse 16, because they are going to show you that Jesus is not ashamed of us as Christians, as those who follow him. And I want to show you that tonight because maybe you struggle, because it was a horrible thing at 10 years old um, to think that my dad was ashamed of me and the way that I was acting. And... I can imagine when you're 20 or you're 30 or you're 40 or older that you might think that the Lord Jesus would be ashamed of you. And and when you think of that, you may, oh, you know, it might be because of this in my life or because I did this in my life or whatever it might be. But I want you to see some things about what Scripture says and how Jesus views you and I. Um, Let me read it and then I'll say the context. For uh, Hebrews 2.10, for it was fitting... And it means appropriate. It means, literally, it fits, it's, it's right there. It fits right in the appropriate place. It was fitting that he, meaning Jesus, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect or complete through suffering. For is the connector word. Here's the reason. For he who sanctifies, sets apart, to God and those who are sanctified all have one source. The NIV would put it this way we have all one family. In other words, these people who are sanctified and the one who sanctifies, they're all on the same origin. That's what you come from the same place. And the NIV does the interpretation for us a little bit. That you're all in the same family. And here's what it means that is why, that is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. And then he quotes the passage directly related to that. 
I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And then at the end of this text, in verse 14, he says, since therefore the children. So here's what he says. I'm not afraid or ashamed of you. Why? Because of who Jesus is and what he's done for you. You, because of that, are in my family, Jesus says. And I'm not ashamed. Now, let me tell you this. I don't know if you've ever done this. Or you, you, I'm sure you have. But if you have a large enough family, you'll know that you take a lot of family photos. If you had a family reunion, you know, we've hate, taken pictures when my parents were still alive and we all flew out to where they were and got together. And we had to get hotels because there's so many of us and all the grandchildren and all that. And you take a family photo and you look in there and then you look back years later at everybody and you see how they've changed or how they've grown up or whatever. If you read some of the genealogies of Jesus, the one in Matthew in particular, verses 1 through 16 of chapter 1, it's kind of like Jesus's family photo. And you look in there, and you kind of think of it this way. If Jesus was at the center of the family photo, and all the people who are mentioned by name, and you read that list of names in his family, you'd have to come to the conclusion that they're not exactly an all-star cast. Um, You've got Gentiles that normally would never have been mentioned in a Jewish genealogy have women of not the greatest reputation and background. You have kings that were anything but stellar. You have people who had all kinds of moral failures and other failures to boot on top of it. And you think about it, and you think, wow, Jesus really shouldn't be mentioned with this motley crew of people. I mean, he should, I mean, he should be in the picture, but you might want to think this, but her, maybe we should Photoshop her out, you know, or him over here, this guy, I mean, look at all these kings, and, you know, maybe we could, you know, put him out of the picture a little bit, and you think at first, when you read the genealogies, and you look at Jesus's family photo, that he really doesn't belong there until you read the Bible all together. And I would tell you tonight that not only would Jesus say that he belongs in that picture, but I think he would want to be in that picture. In fact, I would tell you this, and I I have in my study at home a picture of my grandfather that I never met because he died when I was a baby, and his two sons. This is my grandfather on my mom's side. And it's a picture of him. And he's got his military garb on. He's got his hat kind of tilted to the side. And, and, and if you saw pictures of me when I was his age, he is definitely the person I look most like. My, fa- my grandfather died and drowned in a boating accident when he worked on the boat uh, uh, down the river. And I'm not sure exactly all that he did. But here's what I know about him because I know my mom didn't hardly have a family because they were so how can I say it? Awful. Uh, my, father, my grandfather uh, was drunk most of the time. He was a womanizer, um, divorced my mom's mom, and who I never hardly, I saw just a few times in my life. And my mom didn't even get to grow up because when she was three years old, her parents gave her to her grandmother who raised her for most of her life. And the first time her own parents ever bought her any gift was when she was 12. Her mom died years later, and no one in her family called her till after they had buried her three months later. That's the kind of home my mom grew up in. And so I have on this wall this picture of my grandfather. 
And you would say and think, why in the world (laughs) would you have his picture on your wall? And I would tell you for the same reason I think Jesus would have mine. You know why? Because he's not ashamed of us. I'm ashamed of his lifestyle and what he did and his family and, and to my mom. But you know what Jesus would say? I'm not ashamed. I'm not going to Photoshop your picture out of our family because of the past that you've had or the things that you've done. Now, let me tell you this, and real quickly, I'm just going to say it, so follow me. Hebrews is a book about how much better Jesus is in everything that has to do with the Old Testament. And the word, one of the key words is better. And in chapters 1 and 2, the theme is, by and large, he's better than the angels. And all these verses, starting in chapter 1, all the way through it, introduced by the little word for, a numerous times connecting them all, tells you who Jesus was. And it starts off with this grand description of him in chapter 1 and verse 3, that he is the very image of God. He, he died and he's seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus is exalted. It doesn't get any higher than that. That's who he is. And then it says how he came compared to the angels. He was way better than them, higher than them, glorious to them because he was the son of God. And then it tells you how he came lower, quoting Psalm 8, and he lowered himself and he became a human being and he did it so that Eventually, we get to chapter 2, skipping over quite a bit, that he might taste death for everyone, and he was crowned with glory and honor. And on and on it goes about how great and high and lofty and majestic and awesome Jesus is. And all the honor he deserves. In fact, it says glory and honor is what he deserves in chapter 2 and verse 9. But you know what he did instead? The Bible says he wasn't ashamed to call them brothers. Now listen. Do you know what it meant for him to say that? He had to come from here all the way down to here. He had to associate with people who's all messed up, and that includes you and me. And he he comes all the way down the ladder, all the way down the ladder. And the Bible says that when he says that he should taste death for everyone, you know what that means. It was the cross. And you know that when you are crucified, you are flogged, naked, You are marched through the streets carrying the cross naked. All the way through the streets, thousands of people thronging him. You were beaten, flogged, scourged. When you got to the cross, you were put on a public road. He was not in some private area being crucified. It was a public highway. That's the reason why they wrote the message on the title on his cross in three different languages because it was so cosmopolitan in Jerusalem that multiple people could see it and read it. People could go by, and by the way, when you're crucified, you're not on some gigantic cross. It's like we portray it. You may be maybe four or five feet off the ground at the most. People could come by, see you, come up to you, spit on you, and on and on it goes. And you're publicly humiliated. Humiliated. So here's what he says. But see, when I did all that, I was not ashamed to do that for you. And that's why if you read the end of Hebrews, you know what it says? Hebrews 12, 2. What does it say? Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. What? Yeah, despising the shame. Looking down on it. Why? Because here's what he wants you and I to know tonight. I'm never ashamed of you. I'm never ashamed of you. And the cross and how I died and what took place when I died ought to prove it to you that I would go that far 
to show you that I love you, that I'm not ashamed of you at all. And that's why it was fitting. He was not ashamed. And here's what he says, to call you brothers, brothers, family. See, that, that to me is incredible. I would say this. I, I think you probably would too if you think about your life long enough. There are tons of reasons that we give Jesus, and some of them are every day, tons of reasons why he should be ashamed of us. You want to start tonight? I'm going to start with Chris Carpenter. Now, we could go across, we could go from here all the way across tonight, and I'll start. You give me 10 reasons. Everybody give me 10 reasons, and I'm going to stick to this month only why Jesus should be and rightfully ashamed of all of us. He's not, he's not ashamed to call us brothers. He's not at all. He says, I'm not going to Photoshop you out of the family portrait. I'm not. He belongs in that picture. He would want to be in that picture. But say, Pastor Walker, what does that mean? And here's what it means. It means that you ought to remember constantly your spiritual biography. Don't turn there, but Ephesians twice and chapter 2 and verses 11 and following tells us twice that we should remember that you were once Gentiles, according to the flesh. You were once this. Read Ephesians, read Colossians, read some of the Pauline epistles, and here's what Paul is constantly doing. You were this, but now you're this. You were this, once this, but now you're this. And you know why he keeps saying that to all these churches? Because he never wants you and I to forget that this is what you used to be, and Jesus paid the price for your sins and wasn't ashamed to do all that he did, even when he knew what it would cost him. And I read a book this week, and it's a beautiful quote. The guy said, Jesus knew what he was doing when he paid for your sins, and he didn't keep the receipt. He didn't, he didn't keep the receipt and show you a sale. See, look, listen, look, at this, look at this. He doesn't do that. He didn't keep the receipt. He has solidarity with us. And he wants to show us through his cross how much he loved us. And that should settle for all eternity that he's not ashamed with us. Let me show you the other half of that in chapter 11 and verse 16. As you start your Christian life and you live your Christian life, Jesus wants you to know no matter what your past is, I'm not ashamed of that. And here's another reason why he's not ashamed of you. Because you live your life for him and you would finish your life for him. Both ends of your life. This is why he's not ashamed. Hebrews covers them both. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 13, talking about all the people in the Old Testament, especially at the beginning at this point, he reads, it reads, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them afar off, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. They're sojourners, pilgrims. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of the land from which they had gone out, they would have had an opportunity to return. But they didn't see a city here, but a city there. But as it is, they desire a better, better country that is a heavenly one. And so they didn't live with their eyes glued to earthly things in this city, but they looked to the future and all that God would give to them and have for them and all the future that would be. And here's what God says, when you live that way, when you're part of my family and you don't live for this world and all the things of this world and the cities of this world, 
Instead, you focus on a different world where I'm the center of everything. Here's what he says. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he's prepared for them a city. So you get it on both sides? Listen to this. Jesus is not ashamed to say, let me call you brother. And he's also not ashamed for you to call him God. On both sides, you see that? He's not afraid for him to call you brother or you to call him God. When it goes either way, because of the grace and the kindness and the sacrifice of Jesus, God is not ashamed of us. But that's not the end of the discussion because the question is, is Jesus ashamed of you? Is he ashamed of anyone? Well, he's not ashamed of those who truly are his and live for him and willing to die for him. But there are people that he is ashamed of. And that's why I would ask you to turn to Luke's Gospel, chapter 9. Luke chapter 9, verses 23 through 26. And he said to all, all, ready? If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Now, in this paragraph, that's the main thesis. The rest of it is developed by three points, all using the word F-O-R. He's going to tell you, this is what it means to not be ashamed of me. He's going to show you what it means. The requirements are that you deny yourself, take up your cross every day and follow me. What would that look like? The first four is verse 24. For whoever would save his life would lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. That's the first one. The second one is verse 25. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? The third one would be this. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father of the holy angels. You see what he's saying? He says, listen, if you are not going to be ashamed of me, here's what you have to do. Now, watch. Because in Hebrews and through the New Testament, Jesus' honor is always connected to his shame. When you get to be a Christian... What you think was honor and what you, what you think was shame is usually, to some degree, flip-flopped. Read Romans 6.21. It says, now that you are holy, the things that you used to do, you are ashamed of. In other words, I used to think this was shame and honor, but I got saved, now I think this is shame and honor. Right? It all was reversed. And if you read Hebrews especially, here's what you'll find about Jesus, is that the things that were honor were shameful, and the things that... The world called shameful, Jesus required, or, or said was honor. And the cross is the main one he talks about. And so he says to you, if you want to not be ashamed of me, here's how you would honor me. Deny yourself. Take up your cross like I do. Humble yourself and become ashamed. How far would you take it? Well, that you would die on it. And follow me. That's what he's asking what would that look like? It would look like this, verse 25. Whoever would save his life would lose it. So here's what saving your life is. Rejecting Jesus' cross and not being willing to follow him. You'll lose your life doing it. But if you want to save your life, 
You'll lose it. So you lose it, meaning this, I lose it for Jesus. I deny myself. You know what deny yourself means? I get rid of selfish ambition, selfishness, self-centeredness, self-authority. I put all that away, and I want Jesus to be the one that my life orientates around. And he says, take up your cross. Everybody knew in the Roman world, I read a, a chapter this week, that at one time to prove a point, that Caesar had 6,000 Jewish people, as far as you could see, on 6,000 crosses down one road. You know why? Because here's what Caesar wanted to communicate. Here's what crosses communicate. I'm in charge. Caesar says, I'm the one who rules this place. See, when you take up your cross and you die to yourself, just like Jesus did. Here's what you're communicating to yourself and everyone else. Jesus runs my life. He rules my life. He's the authority. He's the one that's in charge. That's what you communicate. And when you're not willing to do that and you reject him, you don't deny yourself and you don't take up your cross, you're saying, I'm going to run things. And Jesus says, see, I'm ashamed of that kind of stuff because of what I've done. So he says, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me, which means, by the way, what? To be just like me. So what does Jesus say is like me? Well, I look at honor as shame, and shame is honor in our culture. I look at life about crosses. I see how low I can go no matter how high I am. That's what he does. But watch the last one, please. For whoever is ashamed of me, and he's not done, underline this, and I encourage you to meditate on it. It's a sermon in itself. Who's ashamed of me and my, what? What are Jesus' words? It's his authority. It's his truth. It's his understanding of Torah. It's the way that he laid out for Christians to live. See, here's what he says. If you want to say that you love me and you claim me, but you are ashamed of me, in other words, when people talk about me, you don't stand up for me. And then when they, when they say things about life and culture that contradict my words, and you don't stand up for my words, and you don't defend those words. See, here's what he says. See, you're, you're making me ashamed of you. That's who he's ashamed of. People that don't love Jesus enough to think he's worthy enough to stand up for him and his words and what he says are truth and how, what life is really about. See, there's a lot of people like that in the Bible. A lot of people like that. The rich young ruler comes to Jesus in Luke 18 and says, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, here's what you do. Take all of your riches and give them away and give things to the poor. And then you come and follow me and you'll have treasure in heaven. And the Bible says that the rich man, what? He went away sad. Why? Because money was his God. See, that's what Jesus says. You come and follow me. But the problem with the rich young ruler was he couldn't handle Jesus' words. He wouldn't really want Jesus to be the authority of his life and run his life and center his life on Jesus because he'd already had something he centered around. It was money. And he couldn't have two gods. That's why Jesus says that you can't serve God and mammon. You come to Judas Iscariot and all kinds of theories about why Judas really betrayed Jesus, but I can tell you one of them was this, that he thought money was more important than Jesus because he sold him for 30 pieces of silver. It was the price of a slave. I really don't think that he wanted to have anything to do. After watching Jesus being beaten 
and then most likely crucified or, or was probably leading to that. He's going to betray him. He wanted to get what he could out of Jesus because he wasn't worthy enough to stand up for Jesus and fight for Jesus and live by his words and follow him even to the cross. He wasn't going to be willing to do that. You have Peter, like Pilate is standing in front of Jesus and Jesus tells him, you're not going to say anything to me, Jesus. Don't you know I have authority to have you released and have you crucified? You know what Jesus says? You have no authority over me. (laughs) Pilate is confronted with the fact that Jesus is the authoritative one, but he rejects it. And it happens over and over and over again in people's lives, even people at times who sit in church. Well, they want to say that they have Jesus in their lives, but they don't want to take up their cross daily. They don't want him to really run things. He's not their treasure. Paul says from a Philippian jail cell, he says, that I am not ashamed He says, in nothing I shall be ashamed, but with all boldness, as always, so Christ shall now be magnified in my body, whether it is by life or by death, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. He says, but I'm not ashamed. He's in a prison cell. And by the way, just like today, but probably far more, if you're a criminal and you go to jail, whether you're ever guilty or innocent, it doesn't matter. It's very, very publicly shameful. And he says, I'm okay with it. I'm never going to be ashamed. Even if they throw me in prison, I won't be ashamed. Timothy had to be told over and over. Read 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 and 12 and 16. He says, Timothy, don't be ashamed of me. Don't be ashamed of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because you're going to pay the price. You're going to have to stand up for Jesus and his words. You're going to have to keep giving the gospel. And it may be you, when you take my place, you're the one next in prison. You're the one they're going to cut their head off next. And you can't be ashamed, he says. He gives examples. I wasn't ashamed. Anesiphorus wasn't ashamed. And he gives examples on the other side. Philetus, Hermogenes, they were ashamed. And they went back. At the end of 2 Timothy, Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world. It's a real threat. It's a real threat to all of us and the day in which we live. I'm not going to say this is wrong and I'm not going to say this is wrong and I'm not going to have a voice. I'll be silent. I won't make a big ruffle of feathers of anybody. See, we're not, we're, we're not interested in why because we might be struggling with being ashamed. Peter says in 1 Peter 4.16 that let no Christian be ashamed if they suffer. That's the question, isn't it? I won't even ask you tonight, but I can tell you, almost everyone in here, there has to have been a time in your life, I would guess, that to one degree or another that you've been ashamed. When, and it wasn't because you said the wrong thing, because you said nothing. Have you ever done that? Oh, you said that was a perfect opportunity, and I didn't say anything. I chickened out, right? Have you ever done that? I should have said something I didn't. I didn't. I should have said more. I should have said it straighter. I should have said it more loving. Whatever it was I should have done, I didn't. Didn't take that opportunity. Listen, we all have a struggle, don't we? We all do. But I want to tell you tonight, think of this. Next time you're struggling with being ashamed, think of this. He wasn't ashamed of me, and he's still not ashamed of me. He's not. He still calls me brother, and he still loves me, and he still has an inheritance for me. May the cross of Jesus Christ show you tonight how much he loves you that he's not ashamed of you. And therefore, I pray, and as a result, you will never, and I will never, in turn, be ashamed of him. Let's pray. Father,
Help us. Help us not to be ashamed. How can we be? But we are at times. We are. There's going to come a judgment day, Luke says in chapter 9 we read, that Jesus is going to say to some, when you were ashamed of me in this life, now I'm ashamed of you in this life, the eternal life. Father, we don't want to hear those words. And Father, I pray you'll help us as we look at the cross, focus on the cross, and remember who we once were. And remember what you have done and the degree that you went to to save our souls. And that you're not ashamed of us, even though you should be. By all rights, you should be. That in turn, that would so move our hearts and then our hands and our feet and our mouths that we would never, ever be ashamed of you. That we might stand before you someday with confidence knowing that your cross has made the difference in our lives. And we'll praise you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.